Hello, and welcome to Camp Kaiju Monster Movie Reviews. We are your hosts, Matt Levine. And Vincent Hannum. And we're talking about all of our favorite monster movies, the good, the bad, and the downright campy, and asking if they stand the test of time. Traditional kaiju, creature features, space invaders, the supernatural, and everything in between. All strange beasts are welcome here. Camp Kaiju is sponsored by BanditsEmporium.com, where you can shop exclusive monster-inspired t-shirts with part of the proceeds supporting this show. BanditsEmporium.com, hit the link in our bio. As they say, we sell shirts. As Camp Kaiju says, stay campy, everybody. Uh, Tonight is an extra special episode. We would like to welcome back Frank Olson. Hello, Frank. Hello. I'd like to say hello to all my fans out there. (laughs) <laughs> we're excited to tune into another episode that i'm guest starring at i think you mean francoholics the, yes the francoholics that's right that's right <laughs> uh all you longtime listeners and francoholics out there will know frank from previous episodes such as flesh for frankenstein rodan the testament of dr mabusa uh i think that's shin it godzilla. I... shin godzilla was the other one yes indeed that was a good one i love shin godzilla yeah so thank you for coming back, Frank. Yeah, thank you, Frank. Thank you for having me back. The movie that we're talking about tonight, Porco Rosso by Hayao Miyazaki from 1992. Very fun anime movie. Uh, we'll be talking about Miyazaki a little bit and how this movie fits into his filmography. So it should be a good conversation. Thank you all for hanging out and listening. Please rate and review wherever you listen. You can also share this podcast with a friend and send us listener comments at campkaiju at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, campkaijumoviereviews.com. And if you're interested in supporting the show and accessing even more monster movie content, patreon.com slash campkaiju is the place to do that. Wherever you engage, we thank you. And we would just really appreciate uh, a rating, a review, and you can drop us a line at any of those things um, for us to feature on our uh, listener comment section of the show. We should indeed. First of all, thank you to all of our patrons. Frank Olson, of course, is one of them. Jason, Chris, Kelly, Peggy. I think we have at least one anonymous donor as well, or patron, I should say. So thank you. We appreciate you. Um, who's going to hit the camera gong? I know Frank has had the pleasure before, but it's certainly all yours if you want to do so again. I, I will do it. All right, so I'm flying a uh a seaplane over the adriatic sea and i've got the whatever the the thing is to hit the gong just like in my hand hanging out whoa the ocean spray (laughs) it's everywhere (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> an adriatic gamma gong that is an even that's even better than the rest of the gamma gongs amazing you could just hear freedom ringing in in the face of fascism with that gong <laughs> <laughs> uh, the gamma gong always fights fascism that's like one of its superpowers but tonight that is the special theme of the gamma gong thank you frank <laughs> uh we should we should try to think of like extra special like methods for the camera gong and all of our future episodes you know like somehow tied into the movie i don't know exactly what like for flesh for frankenstein it could be like a dismembered limb with like blood spraying everywhere hitting the the camera gong <laughs> um we'll we'll try to do that in future episodes so yeah that's not a bad idea and speaking <laughs> of future episodes we have a a special bonus episode coming up next yeah so our bonus episode is going to be talking about uh what's coming up for the rest of 2023 we have 12 titles that we're going to be talking about over the next six months so vincent and i are going to unleash or unveil our surprise picks we don't even know what what the other is gonna you know what what titles the other is bringing to the show so it's going to be surprising and mind-blowing for all of us so so keep an eye out for that indeed and uh, to to just loop into that, we're including our patron picks as well. So for our patrons listening, recommend some movies, some monster movies you would like us to cover, and we'll do our best to feature those as bonus episodes. And then stay tuned for possible events later this year. Matt and I are cooking up some ideas, including uh, for all of us locals here in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, or, you know, let's extend it to the upper Midwest. 
Um, the Heights Theater is screening the 1933 King Kong. It should be a lot of fun. And I've seen King Kong several times before, but I don't think I've ever seen it on 35. So it'll be like a brand new experience. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And then after, so, so Camp Kaiju is not hosting this screening. I want to be very clear about that. <laughs> we are going to a screening third party. And then after the movie, maybe Matt and I and our, and our fellow Camp Kaiju listeners will go to a brewery or a distillery, some sort of easy environment, talk about the show, maybe record it as an extra episode. Um, but that's kind of the goal for July 31st. So stay tuned for info on that. Yeah, and the Heights Theater, like we're not affiliated with the Heights in any way, but this is still kind of a shameless plug for them. Like they're doing like, I think they do this every summer. They do like a celebration of cinema. So they have some really great movies coming up there that that's that are going to be playing soon. And of course, I don't know any of the other titles, but I can look it up real quick. Uh, so The Wizard of Oz is going to be playing there. Safety Last, the Harold Lloyd classic silent comedy. Uh, Bullet with Steve McQueen. Uh, Dr. Javago airport in 70 millimeter i've never seen that movie i assume it's not very good but it is in 70 millimeter so that's gonna be pretty cool uh ton of other stuff so you know again if you're in the twin cities area check it out the heights theater this summer nice anyway on to the uh focus of tonight's episode porco rosso um so i i I brought this movie to the podcast. I chose this title, but I actually have to thank Frank for this because a couple of years ago, Frank, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were doing kind of a Miyazaki retrospective and like posting online on Facebook about the movies that you were watching. And it made me realize that I haven't seen a lot of Miyazaki's movies. Um, like for the most part, it's the more recent ones, the well-known ones like Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away that I had seen. So I really wanted to bring an earlier Miyazaki title to the podcast uh, mostly because, you know, his the early part of his career, I don't really know as well. Um, so I guess maybe I'll turn it over to you, Frank, and just ask you what your history with this movie is. Yeah, it was actually actually quite a while ago that I, I did that. It was probably about a decade ago. Hmm. I would realized it. this was, I guess, kind of into the lead up to when his 2013 movie, uh, The Wind Rises, was coming out, uh, which to date is his most recent movie that's come out. Um, but yeah, I, I realized at that time I had seen Spirited Away, I had seen Howl's Moving Castle, maybe I'd seen Princess Mononoke, but I hadn't seen any of the other stuff at that point. And his work is all like readily available, very easy to find. And, you know, there's not that many titles because obviously animated movies take years and years to make. So yeah, I just thought, you know, what the hell, I'll watch them all in chronological order and even rewatch the ones I had seen already. And yeah, this one this one kind of comes in the middle. It's his sixth movie. Yeah, and it's it's a real interesting one. It's one that people don't talk about very often. You know, certainly compared to like Princess Mononoke or um, or even some earlier stuff like My Neighbor Totoro or or later stuff like Spirited Away. Um, but it's kind of a, like a weird uh, transitional movie in a way because it sort of combines like the action of his earliest movies which i would say are more like generic kind of anime action movies with sort of like the whimsy and like childish elements that he started introducing with like uh my neighbor totoro and kiki's delivery service which were the movies that came out right before this one um and also kind of hints ahead to some of the darker themes and things that would come in with like princess mononoke uh which was the movie that followed so it's it's kind of like a an interesting weird uh mishmash of like everything he he did basically. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. And like right before I watched Porco Rosso, I I watched My Neighbor Totoro for the first time just a couple of days ago and had very high expectations for My Neighbor Totoro because it's, you know, one of his most beloved movies, I would say. Um, on the recent BFI site and sound poll, I was surprised to see that it ranked very highly, like in the top 50, I think. Um, so I had high expectations for that and maybe a little bit lower expectations for Porco Rosso, just because I didn't know too much about it and thought that maybe it was kind of not one of his more beloved movies. Um, and I was a little surprised by, you know, the outcome of my expectations. So we'll talk about that more later. Uh, Vincent, what's your history with Hayao Miyazaki? 
so new i and that's what i love about camp kaiju it just gives me an excuse to watch all these movies that i may not otherwise have watched i've heard of studio ghibli i've heard of spirited away um i had never heard of porco rosso let alone any of those other ones that we've already talked about but i was like i gotta do my homework so before i watched porco rosso i watched my neighbor totoro then i watched porco rosso and then, you know, what's so funny? So for those who don't know, I I, um, I teach high school and Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli is so popular with the youth. I I had no idea. Like all of a sudden, after watching my neighbor Totoro, I'm seeing kids with Totoro backpacks and Totoro <laughs> shirts. I'm like, oh, it's everywhere. Awesome. Um, so today was the last day of school and we were doing a bunch of activities and one of those was a movie day. And I didn't set this up. Another teacher set it up just like playing Studio Ghibli movies all day. So coincidentally, it was perfect. And the two that I watched today were Howl's Moving Castle and Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Not technically a Studio Ghibli, but it is a Miyazaki film. But uh, a lot of people still put it in the same bucket. Um, So... Yeah, I've, I've this past week I've had a real crash course I think in in Miyazaki's aesthetic and his tone and his themes. The whimsy is definitely in there. So excited to dig into Porco Rosso. Definitely, yeah. I feel like this is a good time to mention also that Miyazaki's next and presumably final movie he said he's going to retire after it is supposed to come out later this year. How do you live? I think it's called. Um, so hopefully that will get an American release this year. Do, do either of you know if that's true? I read that, but I don't know if it's just a rumor at this point. I It is listed on Wikipedia as something that's supposed to come out this year. Oh, and apparently it's being released on July 14th, actually, in Japan. So I guess it must be ready to go. But What I've heard is that there's not going to be any trailer. There's not going to be any real publicity beforehand. It's just going to drop. Cool. Wow. Yeah. This turned out to accidentally be great timing for this episode, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So the movie is set in 1929 and follows the title or character, Porco Rosso, an Italian World War I fighter pilot and freelance bounty hunter who has been transformed into a pig for unknown reasons. Uh, although, you know, you can kind of guess at the reasons throughout the course of the movie. After fending off an attack on an ocean liner by airborne pirates, Porco heads to the Hotel Adriano, which is run by his friend Gina. While there, Porco meets the leaders of various pirate gangs, as well as a cocky American pilot named Curtis, who is enlisted to help the pirates take down Porco. Curtis falls in love with Gina on the spot, but is rebuffed by her, as she still has feelings for Porco, whom she loved when he was a human named Marco. Later, as Porco is flying to Milan to have his plane fixed, Curtis follows Porco and shoots him down, claiming to have killed him. But Porco actually survives and continues his journey to Milan by train, despite the fact that there's a warrant for his arrest in Italy, which is politically becoming a fascist country. In Milan, Porco meets his mechanic, Piccolo, as well as Piccolo's granddaughter, Fio, an engineer. Though he's initially dubious, Porco hires Fio to redesign his plane, which is then built by Piccolo's numerous female relatives, because no men are available since they've all traveled elsewhere to find work. Once Porco's plane is finished, Fio joins him as he flies to his hideaway. As they stop to refuel, Porco discovers that the new fascist government is hiring pirates for their own use, thus putting him out of business. Once they arrive at Porco's lair, he and Fio are ambushed by pirates who threaten to kill Porco and destroy his plane. Fio talks them out of it, but Curtis appears and challenges Porco to a final duel. A deal is made. If Porco wins, Curtis will pay off Porco's debts to Piccolo's company, but if Curtis wins, he will marry Fio. Uh, after a bittersweet evening in which Porco relates a flashback from his World War I days, and Fio briefly sees his human face, the duel takes place the next day. A large crowd has gathered to watch Porco and Curtis face off. The lengthy aerial dogfight results in a draw as neither pilot wants to kill the other. A brutal fistfight ensues during which Curtis reveals that Gina still loves Porco. 
As the brawl comes to a close, Gina arrives to warn everyone that the Italian Air Force knows about the fight and is on their way to arrest Porco. As the crowd flees and meets up at the Hotel Adriano, Porco and Curtis team up to create a distraction and draw the Italian pilots away. Uh, there is an epilogue to the film, which we won't ruin here. You'll just have to watch it to find out what happens. It was directed and written by Hayao Miyazaki, who's one of the greatest animators of all time. Uh, he was born in Tokyo in 1941 to a father who was the director of Miyazaki Airplane, uh, which built equipment for fighter planes in World War II. So that partially explains, you know, why aviation plays such a major role in a lot of Miyazaki's movies, uh, particularly this one and The Wind Rises. Uh, he began working at uh, Toei Animation in 1963 when he was just 22 years old. And uh, there he collaborated with uh, Isao, Isao Takahata, who uh, is also a uh, also went on to be a director who did a lot of great movies for Studio Ghibli. Um, and Miyazaki's first feature was The Castle of Cagliostro, which was for Tokyo Movie Shinsa. And that came out in 1979. Porco Rosso was produced by Toshio Suzuki, a longtime collaborator of Miyazaki and a co-founder of Studio Ghibli with Miyazaki in 1985. And I do want to say I I hear Ghibli and Ghibli interchangeably. So I guess I'm saying Ghibli, but I acknowledge that it may also be Ghibli. You know what's funny is before we went on here, I googled how to pronounce it, and I heard the answer, and I've already forgotten. <laughs> that was a bit less than half an hour ago, probably, but yeah. <laughs> so I'm not 100% certain either. Yeah, I'm not either. <laughs> I've heard, I feel like I've heard Ghibli a little bit more often, and I feel like maybe that makes a little bit more sense with Japanese pronunciation, but I'm I'm not sure about that. So we will probably use them interchangeably. <laughs> uh, it's a GIF-GIF situation. Yeah. Although in that case, it's GIF. There's no ambiguity about that. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, the music in Porco Rosso is by Joe Isaishi, who did the music for all but one of Miyazaki's films, which is the Castle of Cagliostro. Uh, the so we have two casts, two voice casts here. We have the Japanese language cast, we have the English dub, which I believe was produced and distributed by Walt Disney. They did that with all of the Studio Ghibli films in the mid 2000s. Yeah, I think initially it was Disney. And then I think in 2017, the distribution company G Kids re-released it again. But it had the same like English cast in it as the Disney release. Um, so I think it's kind of a complicated release history. But yeah, that is that is correct as far as I know. Yeah. Out of curiosity, did you guys watch the English language dub or the uh, the Japanese version with subtitles? I watched the English one mostly because I watched the Japanese version of My Neighbor Totoro. And normally I have no issue with subtitles. But when I was watching My Neighbor Totoro, I was like, I just want to look at these images. I don't want to read the dialogue. So, uh, yeah. So I watched the English one for Porco Rosso. Interesting. I watched the Japanese language just because that's what I found on, you know, HBO Max. But, um, yeah. Why about you, Frank? Yeah, and I, I watched the English one just because it's what I found on Amazon Prime. But uh, um, yeah, I and I think the previous time I had watched it, I also watched the English version. I'm pretty sure that's that's the case. So I don't think I've ever seen the Japanese one with subtitles. I, I did read that apparently uh, this is one of the more like faithful translations, though. I guess there's some controversies among like super fans about you know some of his other movies where. You know, maybe certain like uh, political contexts or things are kind of taken out of the dialogue when it's translated into English. But apparently, this one's pretty accurate. This is a this is an example of a movie. I would I would be curious to hear the English dub because it has so many well known actors. Michael Keaton voices Porco. Uh, Carrie Elwes is Curtis, which I think is great casting there. Kimberly Williams Paisley as Theo and Susan Egan as Gina. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think Keaton does a very good job. He's kind of gruff and stoic as Porco Rosso, as the character is. I mean, he's kind of a chauvinist pig, which is a pun that is going to be repeated, you know, is repeated throughout the movie several times. Um, yeah, so it's a good English cast. Um, I, I have not listened to the Japanese cast. Uh, I do just want to mention their names just to to credit them. Not that I, I don't really know them very well, but uh, the Japanese cast features Shuichiro Moriyama as Porco. Akio Atsuka as Curtis, Akemi Okamura as Fio, and Tokiko Kato as Gina. Um, so yeah, I would be interested to hear what the vocal performance of Poco is like in the Japanese version, if it's, you know, similarly kind of like gruff and stoic as, as Michael Keane's performance, but he does a good job. Um, yeah, so uh, I can start off with the production backstory of the film. I was really fascinated to find out that it was originally commissioned by Japan Airlines to be a short in-flight movie. So not quite a commercial, but, you know, it kind of had that consumer uh, impetus, I guess. Uh, it was based on Miyazaki's own 1989 manga, The Age of the Flying Boat, uh, which was not quite as serious as Porco Rosso is. And something that we'll talk about is that the movie is both serious and pretty silly. Like it's, of course, the plot's kind of absurd. There are a lot of very funny kind of ridiculous scenes that happen, but there is kind of like a more serious minded thematic context to it. So we'll talk about that later. Kind of to that point, as production started on the film, the Yugoslav Wars broke out in the 1990s. And the reason why that's kind of important is because they happened pretty close to where this movie's actually set by the Adriatic Sea, sort of around Italy and Croatia. Um, so Miyazaki kind of added some more serious subject matter to the film to reflect that real-life wartime context that was going on. In the process of doing so, it also became a feature-length film. Japan Airlines still produced and funded the project. It actually premiered on their airplanes before it got a theatrical release, at least in Japan. It was the number one film in Japan in 1992, so it did very well commercially. There had been kind of rumors for a long time that Miyazaki had planned on making a sequel to this film set during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, but as we talked about, if his upcoming film, How Do You Live, is his last, as he has said it will be, that probably will never happen, at least to be directed by him. The it, it being number one at the box office in 1992, um, I don't I'm not surprised by that. Um, I just it just makes me think how. These days, maybe Porco Rosso flies under the radar when people talk about Miyazaki's filmography. At least two people at school, a student and a colleague, I mentioned Porco Rosso and they were they they both said, well, one of them said, oh, yeah, I haven't finished it. And the other one said, that's a strange one. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, but that's the, but that's one of my favorite things about it personally. But yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah, you watch Howl's Moving Castle, like that's nothing but strange. Porco Rosso is a normal, you know, quote unquote movie with the protagonist just happening to be a pig. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, that we'll get to this in the themes in a minute here, but that's kind of like a really I think it's a pretty interesting tension in the movie. Like, is it kind of like a silly, goofy kids movie about like a pig airline pilot or like fighter pilot? Or is it like an adult? oriented movie about war and guilt and self-loathing and stuff like that um and i think the answer is it's both and i you know i think like the question is legit like who is this movie actually for like i was really surprised actually that it was number one in the box office in japan in 1992 because it's there is the question of like who well, who is like the ideal audience of this movie you know mm-hmm Cool. Well, this is a good time to shout out BanditsEmporium.com, which is the official t-shirt partner of Camp Kaiju. Check out BanditsEmporium.com or hit the link in our bio to check out their selection of monster-inspired tees. Part of the proceeds go to supporting this very show. So again, visit BanditsEmporium.com, whatever your style, they have you covered. As they say, we sell shirts. As we at Camp Kaiju say, I would rather be a pig than a fascist. <laughs> <laughs> That's we'll good. also be talking about that soon as well. <laughs> uh, Vincent, do we have any listener comments that we want to bring up at this point in the show? I have two fans who have written in. And I. what about this for a name? Minya's Mailbox. I like it. Although Minya of Son of Godzilla, right? Yes. Yeah. A.K.A. Manila. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, I, I like the name, don't like the character, but perhaps the character will grow on me as time goes on. So I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, our first one. So this is this is pretty interesting here. So we have a, a fan on Instagram. Um, their handle is Jinryo. Uh, apologies for the pronunciation, but I believe this fan, this person lives in Japan. And they responded to our our story asking for favorite monster movie memories, questions, or thoughts. But this person respond wrote something in Japanese in the kanji. And uh, I spent all day trying to decipher it. And with the help of a, a friend who can read a little bit of that Japanese... It's apparently the title of a 1977 movie from Toho Studios called The War in Space. So I haven't heard of this movie, but um, it sounds really awesome, and I would love to watch it. Oh, directed by Jun Fukuda. I'm intrigued. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote it down. I wrote down the title, so I will will, will do some research on that one. Cool. Um, Our second one is from Friend of the Pod, Friend of the Instagram, um, though she's never been on the podcast yet, Brandy, and her Instagram handle is the Queen of the Hop. But she writes and she asks us a question. So she wants to know best and worst monster designs. Uh, the first thing that's come to my mind, the best designs for me, like if I'm thinking about Godzilla movies, I like the off the wall designs, like the Kaiju Megalon, for instance, is a cockroach that has drills for hands and spits fireballs. Well, so I think that's pretty out of left field, but works somehow in the context of Godzilla's world. Have I, I don't know if I've seen Megalon in a movie yet. Have I, have we like, have we talked about any of those movies on the, on the podcast yet? No, not yet. Okay. Can't wait to meet him. Um, let's see. So a movie that I was thinking of today uh, was Curse of the Demon, also known as Night of the Demon by Jacques Tourneur, which is a, uh, has its flaws, but is like a very fun movie. And the monster design in that movie is really incredible, especially a part towards the end where like uh, the monster is like riding on a train and it's like coming full force at like the camera. Um, so that's I, I, I think I'm remembering that right. It might be a little bit different than that. But my vote for like best monster design, just because it's fresh in my head, is Curse of the Demon. My choice would be, I, I guess it's kind of a cliche and obvious one, but the uh, the H.R. Geiger design of the alien from the, the Alien series. Mm. And particularly in the first one where you only see, like, you know, little brief glimpses of it. Like, I think that's just a really, really creative monster design that's totally different than, you know, the cliched, like, little gray man alien or whatever that you would think of. So, yeah. That's a great choice and probably objectively like the best monster design of all time. Like, you know, you can't top Alien. Um, The worst one that comes to my mind is a Roger Corman movie from the 50s called The Wasp Woman. It's about a woman who turns into a wasp, as you could imagine. And like the her costume, it's it's like a Halloween mask of a wasp that she has on. And she just runs around as a wasp. That sounds awesome, I have to say. Like, I'm dying to see this movie now, thanks to your description of that. Yeah, that's it. I was re-watching some of the movie The Haunting recently from 99, I think, with Liam Neeson and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Really, really terrible movie. And, like, all the ghosts in that movie are just, like, as unscary as possible. Like, clearly was made with, like, you know, some shitty computer that, like, uh, was the cutting edge at the time, but now looks terrible. So... I, you know, for lack of a better answer, that's my response to that question. Okay. Thank you, everybody. If you want to chime in, hit us up on Instagram at camp underscore kaiju or email us at campkaiju at gmail.com. We'd love to feature your thoughts, questions, and the like on our show. Getting back into Porco Rosso a little bit, we can talk about the themes in the movie. So uh, one of the themes, of course, is like like early primitive aviation. Uh, you know, there's like a lot of tributes and uh, references to pilots, planes, and engineering companies from throughout the history of aviation. 
And uh, one of these specifically was to a plane, uh, the Caprani 309 Recon Airplane, which was commonly known as the Ghibli, uh, which then became the namesake for their production company. And uh, Caproni is also the name of a minor character in the movie, uh, Porco's friend from the Italian Air Force. I read that pretty much all of the airplane designs in this movie, even the ones that just appear briefly that are being piloted by the various pirates in the movie, uh, are based on like actual, mostly Italian seaplanes from from the actual era, like late 20s, early 1930s, which is extremely impressive to me, like that level of research and like, um, you know, precise detail in the animation. Uh, and, and like, I'm not an aviation expert, so I didn't really like pick up on any of those designs or anything, but that's just super impressive to me. The, you know, level of adoration that they had for this time period and like, uh, this mode of transportation, it's pretty cool. Yeah. You wonder if, uh, Miyazaki being from that family who had the, or the aviation company, if he just kind of like grew up with all these like books that pictured you know the different aircrafts and stuff and maybe it just was something that always stuck with them and maybe he even did a lot of that for memory and didn't have to research it too much for the movie i don't know i i i kind of had the same thought like you can definitely tell there's like a labor of love and like a level of um yeah and kind of nostalgia that's involved in it as well uh one of the themes that that uh stuck out to me was this sense of um honor and loyalty among thieves even all the air pirates, you know, they're all bearded, burly, you know, archetypes. And in the beginning, they are portrayed as the antagonists. And Porco is the hero trying to shoot him down. And but they have like this real cat and mouse um, relationship. Like Porco lets them go. And you get the sense that, oh, like he's letting them go because if he were to actually kill them or put them in jail, he wouldn't have any more fun as a hero. Right. It's like that classic dichotomy between heroes and villains. Um, but as the movie progresses and the, you know, the Italian fascist government of the 30s is more front and center, the air pirates themselves um, become become more anti hero. And certainly by the end, there's a there's a respectful um, competition among all the parties involved the air pirates and Porco. And I just think that that their, their honor code is somehow more pure than the, the bastardized governments that they're all living under. Yeah, for sure. I, I think this might be because I watched the movie Rio Bravo recently by Howard Hawks, but this movie Porco Rosso seems very Hawksian to me where it's kind of mostly about, you know, these codes of honor and loyalty among like thieves and criminals. And then this, wider world of like money and politics is a little bit more heartless and cold and pragmatic. Uh, and also, you know, the fact that Porco Rosso is kind of about the women who, who love these men and kind of have to suffer through a lot of grief and heartache and misery and loneliness, like to, to put up with them basically. Like at times I was like, this is kind of a remake of only angels have wings. Like not exactly, but there, there's a lot of similarities between the two movies. Uh, I don't know if that was intentional, probably not, but I thought it was kind of a cool connection. Just sorry, just to piggyback off that, you mentioned Rio Bravo. The fact that you mentioned a Western in the same breath of this movie, I think is totally applicable. To me, the like Porco is such a he's a loner, he's a character driven by not necessarily like altruistic means. He just he knows one thing, the freedom of the skies. And he's gonna live and die by that freedom it's like a cow typical you know american hollywood cowboy character to me um, he's not tied down by women he has a his own moral code and that theme of freedom is fascinating to me because it comes at the expense of stable relationships yeah and then at the same time you have this american fighter pilot curtis who's kind of like very arrogant, very egotistical. And like the movie kind of has some like playful jabs at him a little bit. And I would say like, you know, against the United States in general, uh, just in terms of it's sort of like cocky, we can like handle anything. We're just going to like step in and control whatever's going on. Like that sort of attitude, you know? So there's a little bit of that too. And you bring up Curtis. He wants to be a movie star. He wants to play these type of rebels in the movies, play and make believe. 
but he can never be as genuine as Porco, who, you know, he doesn't want to be famous, but he is the real deal. Yeah, I, I think that's true. But I think there's also like an element of like guilt and self-loathing that Porco has, you know, like he he made it through World War One. He was a great fighter pilot, but all of his like many of his friends died. You know, like there's the great flashback scene from his World War One days where all of a sudden he and many of his compatriots are in this like brutal dogfight. And he says that he kind of blacks out. He like wakes up above the clouds uh, and he sees you know, all of his friends, everybody else that was in this dogfight, they're dead. And they're kind of like rising to this like heavenly band in the sky. It's a really gorgeous kind of melancholy scene. And like, I think Porco has this feeling of like self-loathing. Like, why didn't I die? Why was I the only one that survived that, you know? And um, let me pull this up because there are some lines of dialogue that are just like explicitly about that. Um, like after he he relates that flashback, Theo is like, oh, well, it wasn't your time yet. Like you were you were not supposed to die. And Porco just says, really, I think it means that I deserve to be alone, um, which is, you know, a very, very sad, a uh, very sad line. Obviously, there's an earlier part of the movie, too, where Porco is looking at a newspaper headline that says, is Porco dead or alive? And he kind of puts the newspaper down and he says, good question. Uh, so, you know, like, I, I think it certainly is about like his freedom and like not being tied down, but also he's kind of forced himself into this loneliness because he thinks that it's what he deserves, which is, you know, I, I was a lot more touched by that than I thought it would be. Yeah. It's almost like his, his turning into a pig, which is never really like explained in the movie. Um, even, even in that flashback, there's no indication of why he's a pig, but it's almost like that's like a manifestation of his just like trying to trying to turn away from his own humanity, sort of in a way. But then, you know, you see that he, he can't quite do it. He's he's just like ultimately too good a man. And that's why sometimes people see him, you know, at, at certain times with his human face, like Theo sees him. We, we see what Theo sees where she sees him with the human face as he's about to recount that flashback or, or maybe it's right after he has the flashback. And then later toward the end of the movie, when he, uh, you know, he has a fight with the, the American pilot. Um, and then they kind of have to get away when they know that the, the fascist government is coming where we don't see it, but the, the uh, American pilot says something like, you know, hey, let me see your face again. Let me see your face or something kind of like implying that he's also seen like the the handsome human face of this guy who's turned into a pig. So, yeah, it's it's kind of like he's he's trying to trying to cover up his self-loathing by like turning himself into a pig or something. But then it I don't know there's times where like his humanity just chimes through. Yeah, it's like um, Rick from Casablanca. He uses this sense of freedom as an excuse while drinking himself to death and oblivion and self-loathing. But underneath, there is real character there who will ultimately do the right thing. And it's that archetype that I that Porco as a character fits so well. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Casablanca, if that was like a maybe even like a deliberate model for his character. Oh, yeah is rick from casablanca so that's a good even in the the trench coat and fedora yeah 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 definitely and just the sense that like um you know like rick's behavior in casablanca and porco's behavior here is like you know he's like they're chauvinists at least initially to a certain extent and maybe like um antisocial to like a harmful degree but at the same time like compared to like you know, this political violence that's going on around them, the fascism that surrounds them, like they're, that's another reason they're trying to distance themselves from humanity, because if humanity is capable of that, you know, who wants to be human? It's probably better to be a pig in that case. So yeah, so it's, there's this like tension of like, you know, Frank, I think you said it really well, like uh, Porco is trying to like um, suppress his humanity, but he just like can't do it. It, it inevitably comes back, you know? Mm-hmm. I think kind of connected to that is this this theme of like nonstop war, I think, which, again, was like inspired by the Yugoslav wars in the 1990s. Um, I, I think there's a really interesting part in Porco Rosso where Gina says that she's been married three times to three different airline pilots or fighter pilots, and they all died. And I don't think this is explicitly said, but she kind of alludes to the fact that they all died in war in like different parts of the world. Like Italy is one of them. 
Um, I can't remember the other two, but just the sense that like, you know, as soon as one war ends, like another is about to begin, basically, which when the movie is set in 1929, you know, historically, we know that was literally true, like post-war trauma from World War One was still very prevalent. Uh, but, you know, they were only a couple years away from World War Two. So, um, yeah, I just think this theme of like, uh, and, you know, again, like pacifism is like a big theme in a lot of Miyazaki's movies. Princess Mononoke certainly comes to mind. Um, so I think that's kind of like another sobering theme that this movie has, which certainly is like it kind of clashes with like these ridiculous, like burly pirates with beards and like this, obviously this pig Porco Rosso. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's definitely like kind of like a bleak subtext beneath it all. And I, I think also related to the nonstop war and, and Gina's husbands, I think they uh, when she's having her conversation with uh, Porco at the restaurant, I think she even mentions that the most recent husband, you know, had been missing for weeks or months or whatever, and they just recently found his body. So it's just kind of like an ever present thing in their lives, it seems. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's a good point. Yeah, uh, just briefly that I do think is is interesting uh, is that there's no characters here who are sort of specifically coded as Japanese. It's a Japanese movie. It's, you know, there's Italian characters, American characters. I think, is Gina supposed to be French? Am I right about that? Or is she supposed to be Italian? I know she sings in French, but. Yeah, I took that to mean that she was implied to be French, but uh, it is, yeah, unclear, I guess. But anyway, it's interesting, I think, that there are no, like, Japanese characters. Um, you know, obviously Japan I would have a lot of reasons to not want to, uh, not want to recall what happened to them you know around the, the time of the world wars but uh it is interesting that this huge hit japanese movie does not have any characters from their own country yeah i thought that was really interesting too and i, I think like we actually kind of see that like right away in the movie when there's this uh introductory text on screen kind of like telling us what the story is going to be about and it's listed in a lot of different languages, uh, like French, English, Japanese, Arabic, uh, German, some other ones. Uh, and I read that that was kind of a result of Japan Airlines kind of, you know, like you, you fly around the world on Japan Airlines, this like global community or whatever. But it also like really does connect to this theme of uh, maybe themes, not the right word, but just this setting. It is unique among Miyazaki's movies that it's, I think, the only one where it's clearly set in a geographic region that is not Japan. And like Frank said, doesn't have any Japanese characters. So um, yeah, if it started as kind of like a result of the kind of like corporate branding or whatever, uh, it also works perfectly for the movie, I think too. Yeah, so we can move on to the form and the aesthetic of the movie. Uh, I'll censor myself a little bit. The first thing that I wrote in our Google Doc here, but this is just an incredibly beautiful movie. Um, like every image is packed with like these bright, beautiful pastel colors, like the blue of the sky and the ocean and these like bright whites of the clouds, uh, not to mention these like vast crowd scenes where we just see like all these unique faces, like as far as you can see, basically. Um, and this is personal preference for me, but like, you know, having watched My Neighbor Totoro the night before, definitely a very beautiful movie, but like watching the kind of like more modern more like urban setting and a lot of porco rosso i was a little bit more dazzled by the visuals in this movie than my neighbor totoro personally i think that uh that scene you mentioned earlier to the um uh the the flashback scene where porco is is seeing that sort of like line of all of the airplanes i guess like going off to heaven or whatever um and they're all kind of intermingled with all these different airplane designs. And it, if I recall, there's not really any like national signifiers on them necessarily, but they're all just kind of like, um, you know, just different designs kind of showing off their, their humanity and their creativity and stuff that that's a particularly beautiful shot. I think. I don't watch a lot of animated features typically, but I love the hand-drawn aesthetic of pre you know digital animation um there's just something a little raw about it a little rough around the edges um it's got a i keep going back to it i love the hard-boiled vibe especially the first half of this movie um porco's just smoking a cigarette and he's and i'm like this is the coolest movie like this rivals any humphrey bogart character honestly it's awesome um 
it could be in black and white. I mean, and it would still look just as good. I think like the main the main thing I want to say is just like this tension of I kind of alluded to it before, but like, you know, this the humor of it, the, like the childlike whimsy, the wonder of it, um, the clash with like the the deeper kind of like themes and commentary of the movie, which really are pretty bleak and melancholy for the most part. Um, it, you know, like I think one good example is like the opening scene where the pirates are abducting all these schoolgirls from from a ship. It's a really funny scene uh, because the girls are like so excited about this predicament that they find themselves in to the extent that the pirates are like totally in over their heads and like very, very it's really charming. Like they're it seems like they're kind of like brutes at first. And then almost immediately you're like, oh, these are kind of like lovable goofballs, you know? Um, so you have that like sense of humor and that kind of lightness, but then like shortly thereafter, like the scene with Gina in her hotel is a good example where she's talking about all of these men that she's, that she's loved who have died. Um, you know, like that to me, that clash of styles and like tones, first of all, I do think Miyazaki has like a good handle on it. I think he knows what he's doing in each particular scene. And also I just think it's interesting. Like I would rather have something like that. That's maybe a little bit like tense and awkward at times than something that seems a little bit more straightforward. So this movie was a lot more interesting in that way than I thought it would be. And it really is unique in Miyazaki's career. Um, I love that it's played so straight. And like when the mo- when the movie has its private moments, um, when Porco and Gina are having dinner one night, it's a very um, intimate moment. And I think those those are really great uh, examples of the melancholy of the film. Uh, I love the whole idea of, of air pirates. It like creates this. That's not a thing, right? <laughs> Let me check my history books, but that's not a thing. Um, but I love that that's the imagination of the world. And I buy it. I believe that it could be a thing. And that's a testament to the grounded nature of the of the direction and the writing. Um. And I and I love there's a very I I see a very small strain of spirituality in this movie. There's the obvious flashback when Porco rises above the clouds and sees the the planes ascending into heaven, companions lost or even he's killed in in combat. And he like touches heaven, but he does, but he he falls back to earth and and it plays into his self-loathing. Maybe I should be there with them. But then when he's having dinner at Piccolo's house, everyone folds their hands for grace. And Porco, though, he's about ready to eat. And it's a moment where he's like, oh, this is what unbroken people do. And it's that that tension between the you know, institutions and, and relatively normal procedures and this life that he's carved out for himself, which is completely um, in opposition to any of that. Yeah, I think you guys covered a lot of the a lot of the good stuff there. Yeah, I mean the, the animation was absolutely gorgeous. The uh, the big action set pieces, you know, in particular the aerial ones are all really dazzling. Um, yeah, and and you know, like Matt was talking about the uh, the clash of tones throughout the movie is is very interesting. Um, I I don't know if it entirely all holds together, but it's, it is, it is fascinating and and much more interesting than your average, like, uh, you know, more streamlined, uh, like Hollywood type product. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a a lot, obviously that's good about this movie. Is there anything that's bad about it? I can, I'll turn it over to you guys. If you have anything. I was going to say, I think a few of the characters are not particularly well developed, like Gina in particular, I think is basically just kind of like a a character type and doesn't really have too much personality of her own. Whereas, you know, like Vincent was talking about, Porco is, you know, kind of in the mold of, um, you know, like the Humphrey Bogart characters, uh, you know, those type of world-weary characters. But he has a lot of distinctive qualities of his own, and I don't think Gina does in particular, and I think she could have used some more development. I also just think in general that there could be it it seems like the the movie could have used a little more structure at times like i i sort of wish that there was maybe like a fascist villain present because you have like the the theme of the encroaching fascism but you don't really ever see those people much they're kind of just like lurking in the background and 
it it does leave the movie feeling like a little bit shapeless i think yeah i could agree with that i see that for me there's two big things with this movie uh the end the the fist fight between curtis and porco for me doesn't seem to be in line with the whole movie it's all about aerial combat and and whimsy and then it's like it's literally grounded in a way that I don't know. It's less interesting to me. It's like, but also, I don't know if you guys picked up on that. So I want to talk about Theo. Uh, I love the character, strong female character. She's only 17, which is even better for her character development and who she is on the flip side. And I know maybe, maybe it's a product of being in the 19 in 1929, but all the men just have eyes for her. And a, you know, you could talk about her being an object, but B, she is 17, <laughs> which is pretty young. And Porco resists, you know, he's he doesn't go down that road, but I was afraid he would. Um, and it's character choices, but it, it I don't think it it uh lends itself well to modern sensibilities. Um, and also one more thing. There's a really nice shot scene where Porco is watching a cartoon in a movie theater. And I'm like, okay, this is a nice scene. And like, there's kids in the movie theater. And then he's met by one of like a, an old, an old friend who's in the fascist guard. And he's, and the fascist friend is going over Porco's rap sheet. And one of the crimes is pornography. And Porco's sitting in a movie theater with children. The, the setting was weird for that line. So maybe from like a script writing perspective, I would just cut that line like that. We don't need to know that he was into pornography or like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a weird crime to put in there for me. I, I think the idea yeah. there was maybe that the government is trying to frame him as being like, a, you know, decadent or, you know, like some sort of like a pervert or something. Somebody who's, you know, like interested in his own pleasure more so than in serving the state or or whatever and being responsible um but yeah i could see what you mean about it being a little bit of a weird weird location for that line to take place yeah yeah and i i think also that could be like conveyed a little bit more clearly if it is like an intentional commentary about like the government trying to label him as 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 a delinquent or whatever like this maybe kind of goes back to what frank was talking about a little bit too like fascism is kind of like a vague threat but we never really see like the actual sort of like consequences of that you know um so i think that could be presented a little bit more forcefully so i definitely agree with that um and it, yeah like i in in my bad category it was also the fact that all these men like every single character has to comment on how young and beautiful theo is and it's just like, in addition to being creepy, it's just like, all right, we get the point. Like, not every single character has to mention this, you know? I do think it's kind of cool that, like, at the end, Theo uh, gives her voiceover narration, and it kind of becomes her story a little bit, like, in that epilogue where she's saying what happened to the characters. She's talking about how she herself, like, started an aircraft manufacturing company, much like Hayao Miyazaki's father did. So I thought that was kind of a cool way to like actually make her sort of the hero at the end of the movie a little bit. But I, I think before then, a lot of the sort of themes of feminism and Fio's kind of like, you know, pluck and ingenuity and stuff like that is presented a little bit, obviously. That was the main weakness for me, I would say. Yeah, and I, I think part of the point of the characters constantly bringing up how young and attractive she is and everything is just to emphasize like how much they're underestimating her. But I do agree that, you know, they probably do lay that on a little bit thick and, and maybe they could have also at least made the character 18 or something. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. uh, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like there, you know, there's also the the cool image where like, um, you know, all of Piccolo's female relatives, like dozens of women, dozens and dozens, including like these kind of old women who are, you know, seem to be barely able to move. Like they're the ones that build the airplane and like Porco, meanwhile, is just like sitting there rocking a cradle with an infant in it so like there are some clever moments where like those gender roles are reversed you know um so yeah I, I think like the movie's attempts at feminism and like reversing those um preconceptions are admirable but aren't always uh conveyed very well 
kind of a cool tribute to the, the role that women did actually play during World War II in, in manufacturing and everything while, you know, so many men were off at war. Yeah. And Porco does have a good arc being dismissive in the beginning and then fully on board with, you know, women helping him out. Uh, so that's really, yeah, really great character development with Porco. And all of Miyazaki's, or at least all the ones I've seen, all of his films deal with with women as central characters. Awesome. I do we is there anything campy to say about this movie? Or like I didn't really have much to be honest in this category. There was one line Porco says, he says something about a pig's gotta fly. And I cracked up because, you know, the phrase when pigs fly is meant to convey like, yeah, that'll never happen. But this movie, it literally does happen. And again, speaks to the the imagination and the possibilities of this world. Yeah, I think some of the pig dialogue can be a little bit laid on a little bit thick. Like there's a line, all middle-aged men are pigs. There's another one, why are you being so pig-headed? So like it definitely makes the point very overtly, like the the pig animal symbolism or whatever. Um, I, I don't know if that's, yeah, I guess that's close to campy or at least just a little bit like unsubtle, but you know, again, for the line, I'd rather be a pig than a fascist. It's totally worth it, in my opinion. All right, so it's time for us to give the movie a rating. I'll, I'll go through our rating system a little bit, as I always do, because I love this part. Uh, so our top rating, it's a timeless classic and definitely stands the test of time. Our second rating, there may be some antiquated moments, but overall it's great and stands the test of time. Our third rating, it may be historically significant or just fun, but does not stand the test of time. And our lowest rating, it is not worth revisiting and definitely does not stand the test of time. Um, so yeah, I'll turn it over to you again. Vincent or Frank, do you want to give your rating? Frank, as our guest of honor. I'm going to say there may be some antiquated moments, but overall it's great and stands the test of time. Um, I, I think, like I said, it, it could use maybe a little more structure. There's a few characters who could be developed a little bit better. But uh, overall, really fascinating movie and, uh, you know, definitely very, very interesting, very unique and very, very worthwhile, very worth watching. I'm right there with you. I think it has some some antiquated moments with, uh, again, I think some of the the lines related to Porco's past, like you can paint him as an anti-hero. But depending on the crimes you label him with. He makes him a little less likable, um, but it combines all of my favorite genres and sensibilities, the hard boiledness of the time period, the lush costumes of the 20s and 30s and capturing that silent generation um, and their their mindset following the First World War. This is a this is movies right up my alley. Yeah, I'm uh you know, I definitely agree with you both. I think all of your criticisms are very valid. I think for me, at risk of overrating this movie, I, I'm going to give it the highest rating. It's a timeless classic. It definitely stands the test of time. As I kind of alluded to at the beginning of the episode, I didn't really expect to love this movie. I thought it was going to be like an interesting sort of like curiosity in Miyazaki's career. Uh, but I would say it's probably along with Spirited Away, my favorite by his that I've seen. Uh you know, I think, again, those criticisms are all valid, but I think like, I don't know, I'd rather have something that's sort of like interestingly messy than sort of like, um, you know, cohesive the whole way through, but like maybe a little bit less interesting, especially if it looks as just like beautiful and gorgeous as like every single shot or, you know, um, image in this movie does. Um, yeah. So despite its flaws, I'm going to give this our highest rating. Awesome. Thank you, Frank, for joining us once again. It's always really fun to have you on the show. So hopefully you'll join us again in the future. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on. So thank you all of you for listening to this episode. Um, you know, let us know what you think about Miyazaki, what your favorite or least favorite Miyazaki movie is. Um, thanks for hanging out. If you liked what you heard, please tell a friend, uh, leave a rating and review and visit campkaijumoviereviews.com. Instagram or patreon.com slash camp kaiju for more monster movie content. We cannot thank you enough. 
Uh, before I forget, Camp Kaju is sponsored by BanditsEmporium.com, where you can shop exclusive Monsters-inspired t-shirts with part of the proceeds supporting the show. Again, that's BanditsEmporium.com. Hit the link in our bio. As they say, we sell shirts, and as Camp Kaiju says, thank you again. God was telling you it wasn't your time yet. You think? Seems to me he was telling me I was a pig, and maybe I deserve to be all alone. You can't believe that! You're a good person! No, the good guys were the ones who died. Or maybe I'm dead and life as a pig is the same thing as hell. Now go to sleep. <laughs>